0: To Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today, I'm a big fan of. Whether it been with his time with the Babies, his amazing solo career with Bad English, the guy's just the guy's just talented, and he's been rock and rolling for a long time. And uh, and the song "Missing You" was when I was in college. Every time a person broke up. We heard that from their dorm room and I played that a few times myself. And my guest is John Wade. How are you doing, John?
1: I'm uh, very well, thanks. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. So uh I got you live in Santa you live in Santa Monica, right? I do, yeah. Now now how but, are you
1: I spent a lot of time in New York City and New York State. But uh I wound up uh, between tours. Uh, a place came up by the sea and I just bought it. You know, it's not like one of those things. And uh but I miss the east coast, I miss the weather. I miss the people, but it says it's, it's nice you know, I mean in the winter it's great here in the summer it's like you know it's California, but in the winter it's got some character yeah, I, you know
0: i I lived there for actually sixteen or seventeen years, I lived in Burbank, and uh yeah. Oh, I, really yeah and, and, yeah and when I moved back east when i I grew up on the east Coast, but when I got snow again, I was like, oh my God, this is why I moved. But I know the other day, I saw you post on Facebook, you were walking in the rain. Now, yeah. most people in California go crazy in the rain, but you grew up in England, and you spent time in the East Coast, so you're used to the rain.
1: Yeah, no, I love the rain. He woke me up last, uh, two nights ago, about three in the morning, it was, uh, I had to get up and shut the window, it was raining in, you know, but it was glorious, know, I just laid there for a while listening to it, and, um, but I love weather, you know, I'm being British, being English, I mean, I was raised... With the rain and the fog and the wind and the seasons changing and the whole thing, you know, it's uh, it gives a background to your life, you know, and, uh, it gives dimension to to what's happening
0: now with the pandemic. I know California is about to go on a second on lockdown again. How yeah. has that affected you creativity? your creativity? I hear different stories. Some people in the beginning, they were freaked out. Now they're finding themselves more. How have you ridden the wave during this whole pandemic?
1: Uh, Red wine. And a lot of it. I I have actually been in the studio, but uh, at first I thought lockdown was going to be one of those great things like, you know, it was winter, it was February. I just got back off tour. I went to New York City for 10 days, took the train from Penn Station to Chicago, Chicago, L.A. And then everything got cancelled and everything was in lockdown. And I thought, well, I've had a pretty... Rock and roll experience of like the first at least two months of the year, I've been busy, you know, and um. And then everything stopped, and I thought, well, it's going to be okay, you know, it's all right. I'll I'll just write a lot, and I read a great deal anyway. But uh, after about a month, it started to, uh, you know, it was just like too much silence, you know. I think people are social animals, and I think when you when they can't interact with other people, uh things start going sideways, you know? I mean, I've been like this for 10 months, but it's okay, me singing the blues. People have died and people have lost loved ones. Christmas was crap for kids and families. They couldn't visit each other. And uh, so I don't want to come off like, you know, I can't tour, what a shame for me, you know? Touring is like a complete song in itself. That's the high end of life, you know, as you're performing. But in the real world, people have run out of money. There's a change in government. People are polarized in their views. These are really weird times, and being in lockdown simultaneously is—it's uh, a rough deal, you know. So, I thought at first I was going to write an album, maybe write a book—not my memoirs, as everybody does, but a, a novel or something, you know. I thought I'd do that because I, I like literature a lot. But um, it, I didn't. And then, in the middle of it all, about three months ago, I started to go in the studio in Woodland Hills, my my favorite studio, the Doghouse, and uh, I started to record again. And so I've got, you know, I'm just thinking about mixing on Monday. You know, I'm in the middle of releasing something. So in the end, it all turned out okay. But it's it's just, you know, how do you qualify anything at the moment? I want the world to come through this crap and get on its feet and start walking forward. The last thing I'm worried about is uh, painting my masterpiece. You know, there's there's higher things going on here.
0: Well, you know, you're right, I mean, for me, it's funny, me and my wife celebrated our first wedding anniversary in September, and we had plans to go different places. We ended up driving up to Watkins Glen, New York, but we were thinking, you know, we wanted to fly here, we wanted to fly there, but then we thought, you know what, we both have our jobs. We have a roof over our head. We can get out of town. And you're right. You know, you sit there and we do, we redefine things, you know, and, and I know, I want to talk to you about, I know you met Joe Biden. I know you did play the song for him. And yeah. the thing about what happened is with this whole pandemic is what I've learned is where a lot of us are fighting together, Yeah. there's also a lot of assholes. Yeah. Mean, and that's the thing. Yeah.
1: But that's life, you know. If life was the same thing all the way through and people were just uh, were in harmony, there'd be no life. Everything on the planet is in tension and in and, uh, in contest, you know, with itself. It's the that dynamic of life. Everything is trying to kill everything else to live. And in a more sophisticated sense, thinking people uh, see that whatever is the truth... Uh, subjectively they just have their own thing this you know and and they're both right both sides that's the amazing thing both sides are right how could they be wrong it's it's you know it's a human point of view but it's uh, i think maybe the problem is having two choices in government uh that are so radically different when somewhere in the middle is where we'd all like to live you know
0: well you know with government i know you met you met joe biden in January. Yeah. And I bl- and you also wrote a song. Uh, uh, oh, I was but,
1: jamming. We were waiting for him to come on this fundraise and I just made it up. But Joe Kiani, my great friend that was financing this uh, fundraise for Joe Biden, recorded it and it somehow got on the internet. But I mean, I was just making it up. But I think I met him and I think he's a soulful guy. I met him before uh, about Four months before that. And he came to Joe Keanu's house. That was another fundraiser. And uh, Joe and Sarah Keani, they, they support the Democrats. And there's always fundraisers going. I'm a big friend of both of them, you know. But uh, Biden spoke to a room full of people. And he explained why he was running. He didn't want to run. He was the only choice in the country, you know. That He was the, could possibly win. And he's an elderly guy now. And he doesn't really want to be doing what he's doing. He's doing it because he loves the country. And he was speaking in this room, which is a huge room, because it's a big mansion. You know, it's a fundraiser. And as I was watching him speak, and it was very moving, because he was talking about the idea of America being from all different components, from all over the world, coming together for this thing. And that it was an idea. It wasn't like Germany. It wasn't like Britain or scotland or wales or ireland or france or Italy, the you know the, the separate countries america was like the american indians it was like people came here to escape being stamped on and unfortunately mixed up in all that crap was slavery which has turned around to bite us in the ass in a major way anybody with a conscience you look at that and go like, how could you but you know it's been going on for centuries slavery but here we are, all together, and that's what America is, you know. And I looked around the room, and everybody in the room was of mixed race. You know, the Giolitti is Persian; his wife's Persian. Beautiful people. Guy's a billionaire. He's an incredibly intelligent man. He's one of my best friends. And I look around the room. There's there's Korean people. There's Chinese people. Obviously, there's Italians. There's Nordic people that blonde, you know, and I'm looking around the room thinking, and I'm British and I got Irish in me. Uh, and I'm, I think, well, you know, that's it. And you vote for that because it's America. It isn't necessarily politics. In a larger sense, it's humanity. If you go to Manhattan, everybody from every walk of life is somehow coexisting with a very cheery sort of like attitude. And, you know, on the East Coast, it's all rough and there's a lot of fighting and stuff. (laughs) People are aggressive, you know. Irish and the Italians, every year they can fight and and cook great pasta, you know. Uh, But people get on, you know. And this thing about racism, you can't undo what's going on. The the world is multiracial. And the world needs to be safe from all the pollution. And if you're going to have kids... What kind of world are you going to leave them? God forbid they have kids. Half the world, the polar cap's melting. There's, there's fires all over the world. There's earthquakes. There's flooding. It's only a couple of years ago. Uh, Manhattan got flooded. That New Jersey got wiped out. And people are going, this is global warming. And meanwhile, the powers that be are saying, nah, 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 forget that. And when we're at it, let's drill on this wetlands and let's uh, build a condo section and let's launch this and pollute that. And who cares? And let's just get the money. You can't vote for that. If you vote for that, you're insane.
0: That's it's crazy. It's crazy. So that's all
1: there is. That's all there is. You're insane. If you vote for that and you don't take care of the planet, fuck you. I mean, that's basically it. Um, you know, you're no friend of mine. I don't have many friends that, that would uh, vote for that kind of system.
0: It is crazy, as so I said, we see how different things change. And, you know, and you're right, everyone has different views. It's like music. You know, everyone has different views on music. Like you, you know, you're from England. When you were growing up, what what were your influences in your music? What made you follow this path? I mean, who were you listening to as a young John Waite? And when did you start knowing you could sing? Oh, man.
1: Uh, well, uh, cowboy music was very big. Marty Robbins. That was huge for me. It's all like Cowboy songs, Trail songs, Gunfighter Ballads and Trail songs, Marty Robbins, that album. I'd only hear it on the radio or on TV. I couldn't afford to buy it. Uh, but uh we had no money growing up. You know, I lived in a cottage in the countryside. But um, Brenda Lee, you know, my, my cousin Michael was a great musician. He's now in the uh, Temperance 7. Oh, I think he's left. them. But they were a huge band, a jazz band. My brother's a tremendous guitar player. My dad loved classical music. My mum could dance and sing. So there's all this music coming in from different uh, sides, but, um, you know, it was so rare and it was so exotic. that Every time you heard the the piano, you drop everything and just go and listen to it. You know, it was like, and there was all these sort of Irish uh, shanties and, and airs Scottish very desperately lonely crazy beautiful folk songs folk was very big on me when I was a kid all songs about doomed love and and black ravens and and, and, you know just fantastic stuff and that combined with the western the country and western of country music uh, the western part of it that formed what I that's how I thought you know and I always sang the same way so most of been influenced somewhere by the blues as a young young kid you know but uh i found myself able to sing from being a child you know but i, I was very shy didn't want to sing but i liked it when i did and uh right up to becoming the singer in the babies you know i thought of myself as more of a bass player and uh and when you know, they obviously couldn't find a singer, and I was writing the song, so hello, you know, there I was. But it, I had to be pushed into the spotlight because that isn't really what I do, you know what I mean? It's like, and I became that.
0: How did you meet the guys and the babies? I mean, I always, I, I, bands, how bands meet always intrigues me because there's so many different stories, and, there's, and sometimes it's just like he was my neighbor, sometimes it's like he was in art school, he was, you know, how did you guys meet?
1: Well, there was a guy called Mike Colby. I'd just come back from America. I'd been over to Cleveland to try and start a band. Uh, I was there for like four months. It all blew up. And I'd, and I'd already been in London for a couple of years. And before that, I'd been playing around the Northwest. But I'd come back from uh, Cleveland, of all places. Great radio, MMI, you know, uh, NEW. And, you know, that was New York. But. but, I mean, all these great stations. And uh, Kid Leo. And I was... Uh, just sitting around with my girlfriend in Belsize Park I lived over a sweet shop and this guy that works in a, in a guitar store called Gordon on Shastbury Avenue Guitar Village uh, I'd been friends with him before I'd gone off to America and um, he'd heard about this, this guitar player that wanted to try and find a band to join or find other musicians and Gordon said, let's go and have a pint. You know, let's go and... So one night we went down to uh, uh, a pub called Sir Richard Steele's on Haverstock Hill, and in walked Mike, Mike Corby with his manager, Adrian Miller, and we, he bought us a pint of beer, Adrian, or two, and we talked about, and I told him about America, and I was a bass player, I could write songs, and yeah, I could sing. You know, I wasn't being coy. I can sing. And uh, Mike could play the guitar. He couldn't write songs, really. You know, but without me, there wasn't much going on. But I sort of, there was only two of us. Because Gordon dropped out of the picture pretty quick. But uh, it was, you know, that was it. And then Adrian, God bless him, was, uh, he, he, you know, gave me five pounds a week so I could at least eat. And pay some of the rent with my girlfriend. And she got a job. And over about a year, we cobbled together some musicians, fell apart. Mike left, came back. Tony Brock came down. Adrian found Tony Brock. And we had all these different people in the band. Made all these demos with different configurations. And then Wally showed up, the last guy, to audition for a guitar player. And we had I me, mean, Wally walked in and it was the glue up to that point. It was me writing the songs, trying to nail nearly all together, but it was, it was ramshackle. You know, it would lurch this way and it lurched that way and it wouldn't have any real cohesiveness, but me and Wally both like free and free was very much based in the blues and those chord changes. And Wally had a great sense of rhythm, he could glue it all together with this greatness fall sound. And he hadn't really been on tour. I think he'd done a couple of gigs somewhere. But he was untested, but so was Mike. I don't think Mike had ever played anywhere live, you know. And uh, me and Tony Brock had done a lot of work. So there was two guys that really knew the ropes and two guys that really didn't. But when Wally came in, bang! You know, I remember thinking, Jesus Christ. You know, my songs, or what I thought were my songs, you know, come in with, suddenly became this thing. You know, I was back to the Celtic thing, writing these sad, lonely songs, you know, the blues. But once you plug Wally in, it became like something higher, you know? And all credit to the band, but as soon as Wally was there, I knew it was gonna be, we're on our way, you know?
0: Now, how long did it take you guys to get a record deal? And I believe you recorded the first album in Toronto?
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, we were trying to put it all together for about two years. And then we went to Toronto and made the album in about uh, a month, three weeks, a month, you know.
0: So you guys start getting popular. What is it like, you know, when you, you went for that time of getting people, you know, trying to get the all the pieces fit, the babies yeah. start becoming popular. What is that like for you as you're seeing this, this plan starting to pay off?
1: It was unbelievable. I mean, I've gone from living in this sort of Dickensian version of London uh, above the sweet shop with a three-story three walk-up, you know, with a sweet shop in the bottom with my girlfriend from Lancaster. And um, through all this thing about putting the band together in this rehearsal room down by the, by the Thames, uh, Tooley Street, by London Bridge and Tower Bridge, between those two, I think. And um, London, you know, London in the early 70s, 70s or mid-70s, wow you know it's like uh, just seedy beautiful dramatic dangerous uh very stiff conservative unforgiving uh brutal you know very middle class in his thinking and there you are walking around with long hair and an earring and the whole thing you know like just got this dream you know that you're gonna do this other thing i must look like i came from mars but i was proud of what i was you know but suddenly you know, we come to America on this promotional tour. We do all these TV shows like, you know, Diner Shore and Midnight Special and all that stuff in concert. Um, Merv Griffin, all these talk shows, do multiple uh, interviews with all the papers. And he took off. And the album wasn't what we really wanted to do. I think the first album was a mess. It actually was a mess. Why? Yeah.
0: No, why we- was it a mess?
1: it was a mess we came back from canada to be just like that sit i was you know we were finished i mean I, that we everybody listened to the record and hated it it was, sounded wrong it was bullshit and we made a mistake and that, after all that work we all, we all thought all the wives girlfriends record company manager every single person that heard it thought it was crap and we just like went like, jesus you know we trusted the wrong people and we got a second shot. You know, the second act in America. We got one. And we they flew us out to LA. We got apartments. Uh, and we made the second record. They had a lot of faith in us. And suddenly, bingo, we had it, you know. And uh, that was it. The, 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 you know, game on. Whatever was going to happen was going to happen. So we just stepped into it. But it was fantastic. It was, you know, I mean, LA was smaller. Hollywood was smaller. It was the Rainbow Bar and Grill. It was like on the rocks and above the city. There was they were the only real clubs. It was Gazari's about right. you know, hundred <laughs> feet up, you know. And the, co- uh, the
0: Coconut Teaser.
1: Yeah, yeah, baby. And uh, there was Granny Takes a Trip, which was my tailor. In, in, you know, just down the street from the Whiskey and Gogo. So it was like you know, in about four blocks was the entire rock community of LA. And uh, it was small, so everybody knew everybody. You'd go to the Rainbow and bump into, like, you know, Steve Marriott or, you know, Ozzy Osbourne or just, you know, it was fantastic. And it was like a click. It was underground still. It was sexy. It was like there was Cream Magazine coming out of, I think, uh, Michigan, and there was Circus, and there was Rolling Stone. And that was basically the rock press, you know, that was it. And uh, so the charts reflected that. There was all this sort of Hollywood squares, kind of like chips, kind of L.A., middle of the road, uh, you know, showbiz thing. And then that was like TV. And that was the biggest industry, really. But the bands that were taken off, like the Bee Gees and whatever was big at the time, Led Zeppelin, you know, really huge bands, they were separate. And they coexisted in Hollywood. And it was like two cultures that really didn't know what to do with each other. But it was highly romantic stuff. I mean, it was really, I mean, it's still very, I mean, I've said it before, but uh, Cameron Crowe's movie almost was the truth of it. How anybody could capture that that much truth on film about something so ephemeral is pretty marvelous, you know.
0: So you're you're in L.A. and, and you guys are, you're getting bigger and you're getting popular and I'm sure you're touring, you're touring more.
1: Oh, all the time, yeah.
0: Who were some of the bands you were you were touring with?
1: Uh, Journey, Cheap Trick, Styx, uh, Ariel Speedwagon, um, and that was it. That was it. And the rest of it was like huge festivals, and uh, or headlining in theaters, or like clubs like it in the Agora, Sham in Ohio. Uh, we would go out and just blow everybody up. we actually got really good real quick uh, and towards the end of the band when we expanded to a five piece we were playing the rose bow on on a bill with cheap trick and journey and stuff um, and blowing it up you know really popular stuff you know it was like uh we stepped right into it you know
0: now what happened to the babies i know i know you got hurt on stage was that something, one of the reasons things happened? Or what happened to the group? Because you guys were doing well. But I hear so many times that groups are, they've been doing well, but they just get tired of being on the road. And the way the record industries work back then, you just weren't making the money. And after a while, you started, started getting pissed off. I mean, what, what happened with you guys?
1: Well, you know, I, I mean, after the album Head First, which was a traumatic album to make, we had, we, Mike Corby got fired. You know, me and Mike had a fist fight. It was really bad. And it was like, enough, you know, we'll give you a, a quarter of whatever we make. But that was the deal. You know, if we're making any money, you can have your share. But we can't do this with you. And uh, we went to a five piece, Jonathan Kane, Ricky Phillips joined the band. I started just being the lead singer, not playing bass. Uh, and away we went. But at the head first record was the best record. It was the biggest record. And... Um, Every time I think of you was on there, and head first. And we hit the road. And man, we were playing like four nights, five nights a week. And when we weren't on stage with one of these major bands that was touring, we'd be doing headline gigs. Through winter, through summer, no sleep. We'd just be out there doing it. And we'd be, you know, going out in front of Journey's people and just killing. You know, Steve Perry was having kittens. I mean, people that really... It was, we had a lot of attention and we were great I mean I'm not joking man we, we'd come out there and within the first two songs we had everybody on their feet the place was going nuts we had all these songs that we, we you know like every time I think of you Isn't It Time, Midnight Rendezvous Back On My Feet Again Head First I mean we'd come out and just kill for 45 minutes and uh, a lot of bands that we were on the bills with We're not happy about it. We were that that good, you know? And it was, if you do that again, you're off the tour. And don't ever do that. You can't (laughs) sing over there. And you can't use the PA and you, you know, don't get on the PA and, you know, I mean, really silly shit, you know, I mean, really childish, nasty, but we threatened a lot of people who were that good. And, um, but we toured and then we toured again. And the phone rang one day and it was like, it's time to go back in the studio. And i said but we got this hit record we're, we're and the record company were having distribution problems they couldn't put the records in the stores they had regional distribution and it was a problem you know we'd go in the record stores to look for country records and stuff and there'd be no babies records and at first we thought wow we must be selling out and then we realized they weren't getting the records in the stores so it was like The frustration was so enormous towards the end. we had done so well and we were so front and center in America. All was just, you know, a foot away from making it huge. And the record company just kept folding, you know, and it said, well, it's time to go back in the studio. And in the end, what are we, a tax write-off? You know, it's like you bastards, you know, we're doing all this work. I'm breaking my heart out here, you know, working harder than you could expect. I'm doing things here that are ridiculous, and it's just another day at the office for them. And uh, you know, Jonathan can got off with the job with Journey, and that was the last straw, really. I just went, like, fuck it, I'm leaving. You know I was just waiting to get back to England. you know, I'd had enough of the music business. And honestly, I had no intention of going solo. I just wanted to go back to England. My girlfriend was there. I eventually got married. I bought a small, tiny cottage and I was done. You know, I was really done. I was happy to be back in the arms of Her Majesty. You know, I was, that was it. I was completely done. And then I got the offer to come back and make a solo record and I wasn't done. But when the babies broke up, I was, that was it. I didn't care if I ever recorded or sang again.
0: Yeah, but you know, I, I still think, you know, as a performer, because I had a background in performing, and, and when you go back and you do it, and you always say you're done. But for you, you know, you guys, you, you were right on the precipice of, like, blowing up. And I know you wanted to go back to England, but you had to sit there and, and think, I don't know, man. I, I mean, how did you sit there? I mean, how did they lure you back into a solo career if you thought you were done? Well-
1: Well, I went to New York on the way back on the last gig of the babies. I had a knee injury. It just, that was it. we were on tour and, uh, I fell off the riser and I tore all the cartilage out of my left knee. It was really painful. and I went down and that was it. They took me to the hospital and it was, I couldn't walk. We tried the next night to play a gig in Akron, I think. And I came out on crutches, but I couldn't make it through the whole set. I was done. So I went to New York for surgery just before Christmas. And I was always gonna go home to England after that anyway. But I'd come through New York and it was the first time I'd been there without the band. And the a and guy at Chrysalis, Brendan Burke, took me around some clubs. You know, Webster Hall, uh, Hurrah's, Peppermint Lounge, showed me some of this stuff. And I got it, you know, when you're in New York, with a band, you you know you do the gig, then you go out to a bar, and then you go to bed, then you get up and you leave town. I was there for about a week. I spent about five days in hospital, and maybe three days in a in a borrowed apartment, just to get well and wait for my flight back home. But I fell in love with it. I fell in love with New York City. I mean, it, you take and when you're there by yourself, you know John Lennon had just been shot. It's just like there was a huge pall of misery over the place because of Leonard's death. Uh, but everything was so um, truthful. It was in very sharp focus and the people I understood them. They were working class mostly and I'm working class. There was none of that glitz of Hollywood. It was, it was me, you know, it was, I understood it all and it had seasons and Central Park, and it had like the East Village, and he had Greenwich Village, and Soho, and it had artists that I admired. And um, it was a whole different culture. So when I finally got on the plane and went home, that was always in the back of my mind. And after about five months in England, uh, I did want to come back, but I wasn't going to come back to LA and do this, you know, the babies too, or join the babies again. I was absolutely done with that. But I met Ivan Kroll, uh, who, who, was, who passed away two years ago, very sorry to say. Uh, he just he was working with Iggy Pop and he'd been with Paddy Smith's band uh, as a guitar player. And uh, we, he was uh, from Czechoslovakia. He's called the Bad Czech. And um, he was a great guy, a beautiful guy and you know, a very, very well read. And we both were big fans of art and literature and culture. We were probably the most two cultured guys of our age in the city. You know, me and him went to see Abel Gantz's Napoleon at Radio City. He could find some tickets. And we were in the last row at the back. Of, you know, it was the cheapest tickets. But it's do you want to go and see Napoleon? Abel Gance?" you know, Arto. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, I'll go. But it, we both have the same tastes. And we hit it off. And he was such a great guy. He bent, he was, I think the thing with Iggy would be very rough for him. And, uh, and even the thing with Patty Smith, maybe, you know, and he was disgusted and uh, he wants to do something else. And we just, you know, we became great friends, which was the most important thing. Two European guys with no real friends in New York City. Do you want to make a band? Do you want to come with me and write these songs? Yeah. And uh, he introduced me to a couple of people. Bruce Brody, the keyboard player. Richie Fliegler, the guitar player. They didn't join the band, but he was a great guy. And uh, the great Frankie LaRocca. And um, Donny Nossoff came along. It was an East Coast band with two Europeans in it. And we started to, to write this, you know, all these songs like Wildlife. And it was good, you know. It was really a good time, but uh, sadly, you know, I mean, Frankie passed away about six, seven years ago. It's a strange time, you know, but it, it was it was a wonderful time. But like I said, that's why I came back. I fell in love with New York when I passed through.
0: Now you come back, and when you're salt, your first solo album, you have yeah. a you have a popular song on it, and you know, and I think MTV helps because as I'm, I'm of the MTV age, and we would sit yeah. in our basement and just watch it and watch it. And from, myself. From the yeah. beginning, and we'd be like, holy crap, well, look at the way these guys are dressed, and look at that. When you yeah. started getting that taste in the solo career, how was that for you that, you know, you were probably getting recognized more now, because everyone was watching MTV? Yeah, no,
1: it was, it was incredible. I mean, uh, Neil Giraldo, let's mention Neil, uh, you know, uh, Pat Bennett, Neil Geraldo, Neil Gerald, the guitar player, he produced that record and produced it very well. And the songs, me and Ivan's songs, all coalesced on this this, this one record. And we made a, a video for Change. And nobody had videos. MTV came out of left field. And uh, I remember watching the, the opening credit on a little black and white tv and this crash pad i had but nobody had videos it was all like live stuff and then the bands that were fortunate enough to have a video with a big record company you know they would get played but i had this really great video for a change that was like scripted colt falkenberg shot it it was he's very good he ended up doing the missing you video and uh they had nothing else to play god bless them so I was getting like eight spins a day if you call the spin you know a view but I mean and I, I became really great friends with all of them they were such lovely people I mean me and Nina Blackwood, still, I was still in touch you know I mean it's, it's a profound thing and I mean this, all of those people were sweet people and uh, uh you know JJ Jackson you know what a guy and um I mean, JJ used to hang out with the Hells Angels down in the East Village, you know, it was like, it was so raucous, everybody would be like, okay, let's go, you know, and it was great, but it was uh, a different New York, it was very raw, and, uh, but I really enjoyed those people, and I enjoyed that time very, very much, but yeah, I did get recognised an enormous amount, I couldn't, couldn't feed the cat, you know, I couldn't go out and get cat food, but.
0: That was all right. The change video is great. And you got the, the, the journalist outfit, you got the tie and the hat. And, you know, for us, that was yeah. a cool look because we weren't used to that. So so the first album does well. So now, after the first album does well, what is what is the record company expecting from you for the second album? And were, did you feel a little hesitant towards that because of what happened with the babies?
1: Yeah. we have done the same thing exactly. We, we had eight spins a day. Uh, on MTV I was doing all the major TV shows we were we were like a force you know this great band we're doing solid gold everybody loved us and the record company just you know it was like you know it's time to make another record and it was like what wow, we've got this you know we're, we're about to go you know no let's have another record and I got into it with them and uh, I was desperate to sort of I didn't know what I I couldn't believe that people could be like that. So I actually bankrolled a record and started recording uh, at the House of Music out in Jersey. And um, I started working on a record that I was producing. And they asked to hear some tapes, like, come on then, let's hear it. And I played them and they hated it. And it was like, well, we're going to find you a producer. And I just said, fuck off. And I went to the airport and went home. But after, at that point, That's when I really was done. I'd come back and done the solo thing, thinking it was going to be better. And they did exactly the same thing after living in New York for two years. Hand to mouth, you know, and really, you know, really paid some serious dues that I shouldn't have had to pay again. And then they blow the second record, uh, the first solo record. It was like, it crushed me, man. I, I, I never cared if I ever saw... The music business again. I was dumb, yeah, you know, really, truly dumb.
0: So, what got you back on the horse? I mean, thank God well, you did.
1: <laughs> I've met, i met a, um, a lawyer in uh, New York uh, at, at tracks on Seventy Second Street, and he he went to work for a bigger lawyer, Steve machat and the first lawyer. Said you've got to hear John. White, it's really great, you know. And they got me out of the record deal with Chrysalis. It wasn't easy, and it cost a lot, but I got out of the deal, and I went to EMI, and I came to America to sign the contracts. And it was like walking into sunshine, you know. It was like people that really wanted to hear what you thought. They believed in me. They were going to bankroll the record. They were really supportive, Jim Mars, Gary Gersh. It was just like, wow, is this what it's supposed to be like? It wasn't Chrysalis, where you're fighting everybody. They really knew about music, you know. I mean, it was fantastic. And I stayed in America and made the record. I didn't even go home. You know, I came to sign the contracts so I stayed for three months. You know, it was like, it's great.
0: Now, Missing You comes out, and as I said in the beginning... Yeah, that was like in college when you broke up, you put that song on. You know, one guy go, Hey, do you got the John Wade album? And you I've go, I put it on
1: myself.
0: You know, <laughs> where did that song come from? Tell me the story behind oh, Missing You.
1: It was the last, it was the last minute thing. We'd we made the record, great band. You know, we'd made the record and everybody thought it's a hit. And I kept thinking, It's not got that one thing. You know, I love the fact that everybody loved it, but I've been there before. You know, it's like, uh, When people are on your side, they're on your side. But when the record doesn't sell, things change pretty quick. I I just knew we hadn't got that bombshell, you know, that that thing. And I was trying to write different stuff. When David Thorner was mixing the record, I would take off and try and write songs, you know, and uh, this guy was working with Chaz Sanford. We'd been writing this song that didn't really pan out and he was looking for it on a tape. And he hit the stop button at the wrong time. And something else came on that he'd been working on. Just an eight note feel. And I said, what's that? And he said, oh, don't worry about that. I said, no, that's the kind of thing I play on the bass. And that's how I sound. Why don't you let me have a shot at that? And he put the mic up in the spare room. And I sang Missing You, really, basically. I got the whole first verse and the chorus off the top of my head. Second time through. I made the whole thing up. Then I stopped. I was overwhelmed, you know, but I used Every Time I Think of You to get me started because that was a baby song. And then I came up with a rage just like out of nowhere, you know. Um, but it was about, you know, the women in my life that were very important and been a long way from home and distance and denial. And it was very accessible easily because, you know, that was the truth of my life at that point.
0: Well, the song just blows up. I mean, you know, as a performer, you must go, "Holy shit!" I mean, it's it's everywhere. What? How does that change your career when you have a song that is such a hit? Everybody knows it. People love the videos. The girls in my college were like, "Oh, John Wayne's so cute," and he's like, "Oh, we, John Wayne's got." We're like, "John Wade's got nothing on us," and they're like, "No, he's cute and he's a rock star and and he's got an accent and you're just a college kid." <laughs> it was the thing, but yeah, right. You were right,
1: yeah. But yeah, it, it changed my life completely. I mean, I, I was, like I say, I'd more or less been uh, the lead singer in a band, you know, with the babies. And Ignition, the, the first solo, I've never really got a shot. So I didn't really have to carry the weight. I mean, I, I was, you know, I was, I had my toy in the, in the water, but I wasn't, yeah, I was ballsy. I was. I don't know why I'm saying all that shit. I could go in front of twenty thousand people and annihilate them. I knew exactly what I was doing, but being off stage—that's the odd part. When you're famous, it isn't doing the performance. That's easy. That's that's something that organically—that you just have that innate talent for communicating with people in a, on a big scale, you know, or a small scale. It's honesty, really. But uh, I think off stage, it got weird. It was like a you know, it was like everybody changed. It's the old joke about everybody changed but me, you know. But, but it was like that. Everybody changed. And, uh, you know, fame is a strange thing. Uh, it, it was, uh, you, you know, having a medium-sized hit would have been probably better. But having something like Missing You is let me have a career ever since. No matter what I do, people give me the show. So it's a trade-off, you know. But I didn't really want to be, you know, doing that thing where you're really going for it and you're really, you have to be a certain sort of person. And I just haven't got the time for that. You know, I'd rather be me and Ivan somewhere writing a song, you know or in some small dive bar in the East Village, getting up and singing with the band, you know. I mean, my idea of fame is not this stardom thing, but it's also recognising who you are and and completing the gift, you know. I mean, fame is a gift, recognition is. And part of that deal is to give back to people. It's, It's not cool to not show up. I showed up. But the thing was, I wanted to, when I was done, you know, walk away and, and spend a month somewhere else quietly. You know, I went back to England a lot. You know, it was like I, I just wasn't interested in being fabulous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, what was it like you were, you know, you, you were finally making money, though? I mean, it seems like, you know, you were up and down. I mean, What is that like when you, when you busted your ass and you've been so close and all of a sudden you're making money and you're being popular?
1: Oh. Well, my deal with Chris this, didn't exactly let the the money roll in. That came later, it came by the next album. I got a huge advance from me and mine. I bought a house in the country, just outside New York. And um, and that was when, that was a really great time. I mean, it was like the dream of having a house in a really great, you know, Pound Ridge and, a, and you know, had a roadie that slept in the basement and, it was great you know it was very Keith Richards I suppose but it was a country retreat it was a place I could go that was an hour and a quarter outside of Manhattan and so I would go in record or go to the China Club and hang out for the weekend or whatever it was going to be and then I would go home again I'd leave you know I wasn't really interested in, in going to some premiere or some special kind of Soiree I just like it was pretty rock and roll you know i I knew who I was I didn't need to do all that stuff, and I suppose that's what has made it possible for me to have the career i've had i you know i I knew when to go home
0: well you know you have you've had a you've had a great solo career still to this day and you've you've always been recording how did bad English come about was that just something that you wanted to get back in a band or what happened well
1: i, I My manager, Trudy Green, uh, walked me into Epic. She was a very powerful woman, still is, great manager. And um, she walked me into Epic, and the the A&R guy uh, seemed to dismiss my songwriting. He said, yeah, we'd love to have you on the label, Uh, but I'm going to help you with the album. I'm going to be there. And maybe, you know, I'm going to play some songs. And and I thought, oh, Jesus, you know, really, we're going to go there. You know, all the baby stuff missing you. That didn't count. And um, I wanted to deal with Epic. I really did because they were fabulous. You know, Paulie Anthony, people working there that were the best. And and Trudy liked him. And I like Trudy and everybody likes everybody else so it was my it was down to me to sort it out and i thought if i had the record due i'd signed it you know and uh and i thought well if i do a band there will be four or five of us and we'll be invulnerable because they can't really single one of us out and you know it's going to be like a band and nobody expects me to come back after missing you with a band you know i thought it was clever And so that's how it happened. That's it. There isn't any great mystery. It was like, you know, the only way through this shit is to sort of be with other players. And uh, I mean, I might have got the idea from David Bowie, Tin Machine. That happened when I was making Missing You. Um, Tin Machine was his version of him in a band. So I might have been influenced by that. But um, it was inspired because we sold, you know, over a million records, and we had like five top twenty singles, and it was the right decision, you know.
0: How did you formulate it? I mean, how did you pick those guys out? I mean, you knew them. I mean, you knew. You knew Jonathan. Uh, there wasn't
1: a lot of choice. There was. I, I tried to find a guitar player. I went to I went to England and toured the clubs. I tried to get a hold of Johnny Marr from Morris's band, just to sit him down and say, "Is there anybody that's really young and great?" You know, I wasn't trying to get him in the band. Um, but there was nobody around. And in the end, it was like, why don't you call Jonathan Kent and see what he's doing? He's not doing much. And um, it was like, well, you know, okay, all right. And it was kind of like, yeah. And then Neil showed up, Neil Sean. And then Ricky showed up, Ricky Phillips. And then after about three different attempts, Dean Castanovo, young fireball drummer, you know. And um, that was it. It was pretty organic you know it wasn't like let my manager talk to your manager it was like do you want to be in a band yeah okay let's go easy
0: so that band does good and then you know you go back to just solo what is it like because you've gone from band to solo to band to solo is there ever a i could guess say an insecurity because now it's you solo It's not with that band. I mean, how as an artist, do you, does it change your writing or anything?
1: Well, I think the the album I made after that was Temple Bar. And Temple Bar was written about New York City as I was living in New York City. And I had all the confidence and all the clarity of being solo. I was playing with the greatest musicians you can imagine. I mean, New York's finest rock players, Jeff Gollum on the guitar, Shane Fontaine, Tony only be it on drums. It was like, motherfucker, They were so good. And they all were in sympathy w- with where I was taking it. And uh, Temple Bar was probably the best record I've made. I mean, it really was. It was, it was off the hook. It just like, uh, so I, I, you know, after being in a band for three years or whatever it was, and having to compromise and sort of go halfway and, And be super patient and uh, bite your tongue and, you know, just being a a righteous guy. You know, when you're in a band, you're supposed to be the best guy you can be with everybody, you know. And uh, it was a relief to be back in New York City. And it was a relief to be solo. And I suddenly knew exactly what I wanted to say. It was was a song. Those songs were, were written when I was about 38. And it's about spiritual yearning, the city itself, New York City, stardom, and for whatever that's worth. And and God, you know, it's all in one album. It's a, it's a powerful record. Temple Bar is probably my favorite record, yeah.
0: Now, how did your fans act to it? I mean, because fans, you know, there's going to be people that think of you from... Missing you. There's gonna be people that probably know, never knew you were in the babies. You know that's how people. You know, especially nowadays. How did your your diehard fans react? at Temple Bar and the people, not your diehard fans, but the people who were your fringe fans. Was was did they really enjoy it?
1: It was gonna be a, a, a. sad story here. But the guy who owned the record company with the guy that run Chrysalis, and he folded the record company two months after the single came out. But uh, it was just one of those things you know you have to roll with the punches but it was in, it was hugely well received we had a song in true romance the tony scott movie uh in dreams it was cool and we made we shot a video with him in monument valley tony in a helicopter which is fantastic and another video for how did i get by without you in a snowstorm in new york city and we've got on the charts, you know, the radio charts, like in the top 10, then we're number two. It was all set to go. And the record company folded. But the fans got a hold of it. And it sold well. You know, it sold well. And um, it just didn't have a long life. It was, it was a real shame. But uh, I managed to buy it back a few years ago, so I own it. So I, I can live with anything. I, I own that piece of work. You know, it's like... Um, If i didn't own it i would probably there'd be some bad shit going down you know i mean it was it was my masterpiece really if i can say that without smiling and uh and i own it and i'm proud of it but temple bar was uh that was a watershed moment i became my own man again you know when you're in a band you really spread yourself thin you really do there's there's people pulling and pushing and all sorts of mind games going on it's bands you know people at their worst but when you're solo you're surrounded by people that you choose to be with that, that are your friends really you know it's a different dynamic completely
0: now you've you've you also play with Ringo's all-star band and now I saw Ringo's band in LA at, when the universal amphitheater was still open and it was him with Ian Hunter uh, Greg Lake it was you know and when I went to see the concert cuz my friend hosted a talk show with Ringo on the Playboy channel years ago. And so it was great. We had great seats. And and when you went to see that, it just looked like everybody was just having fun. What was it like playing? Because it, it's a, it's the ultimate super group when you play with Ringo.
1: Yeah, you, you can't go any higher. You know, the guy's an absolutely, unbelievably gifted drummer. And he was the man on the scene. And he number one in the world. He's probably the most popular Beatle. You know, the most accessible Beatles. He's a drummer, uh, probably the most, you know, acceptable, you know, but when he got behind the kit, he was, I mean, was a funny guy, you know, very charming guy. And he's seen everything. So uh, everybody's up there playing the hits and then they get to play behind Ringo. You know, it's two hours of, um, it's intense, you know, you got, you know, different musicians want different things for their songs. And you got to change styles and all that kind of thing, you know, it's no, I want it this way. And it's like, you can only play it one way, you know, it's me. Uh, but I really hope I did the, I mean, I hope they were happy with it. I did the best I could to really bring some solid bottom end to, to the band, you know, and, uh, carry the weight. You know, I really did. I tried to, uh, deliver every night and, uh, pay attention.
0: Now, when we get a vaccine, well, we have a vaccine. Whenever we can get it, you guys yeah. will get you guys will get touring again. How did you put your band together? Now, I know, I know the one Tim, I believe it's one guy's from Philly. Um, yeah, Tim Hogan. Yeah, how did you how did you get that band together? And and how long have you guys been a group a, a, a bit together?
1: Well, uh, Tim Hogan's been like the constant for like twelve years. I, think. I met him in Bonds in uh, no Carmine. Times Square in the bar. He was touring with a with a with an act, and uh, and um, we hit it off. It was snowing outside, and he offered me his overcoat. I didn't have a coat, and um, I can't remember how. Oh yeah, I can remember his first gig. Everything went wrong. We were we were, we were opening for Heart in some amphitheater, and uh, everything blew up. The sound man, I think, was trying to mess with us everything was feeding back and the drums fell off the riser and the guitar cut out. My mic went off completely. I threw my mic into the audience and the only thing that was still playing was the bass. <laughs> so he passed the audition, as we say. And um, me and Tim, man, he's like my brother. He's, uh, we've been through thick and thin, but he talked me into coming back on the road. Really. I was kind of like, you know, eh, You know, I I was living in Nashville and I was writing all these songs and I... And um, tell you the truth, my father passed away and I had the blues, you know, I just like really felt terrible. You know, I just felt awful and I had too much time on my hands to think about everything. And and so we hit the road and Tim was at the wheel, you know, he he would feel the gigs from the agents and said, you want to do this one? I go like, "Okay, yeah. And we made an album, a live album. Called in real time, and from it just snowballed after that. We just stayed on the road. We started playing unplugged dates. We started playing full band dates. We played festivals. We played all over the world. You know, went to Holland, went to Germany, went to Britain, played my hometown. You know, I did a lot of work, man, and always on the road in uh, in America. But uh, with Tim was like the the. The conduit, you know, he's the guy that made it work.
0: Now, I was—I saw a video. It was—it was on. I think it was on your Facebook page. Someone posted it. Uh, it it's a—it's a, a acoustic version of Change. How how do you change? And it sounds different. How do you change it up? I mean, do you plan it? I mean, how do you plan to do an acoustic version? And how do you sit there and make sure that it does the song justice? Jesus, I just couldn't
1: think of John start singing it isn't like let's do it this way you just play it. I mean you can't go out there and scream and shout you can. I mean I guess you know when you're playing the acoustic guitar you, you play to it you know you don't try and overpower it you can't it's the acoustic guitar it's going to be amped up and coming out the speakers in the front and it's in your monitors but you can hear the guitar acoustically as you're playing so you sing to the guitar you can't just do like a rock version of that with the acoustic guitar. You have to somehow... But this is back to my Celtic kind of like folk roots. I mean, it's it's effortless to me. I was in the studio a couple of weeks ago uh, with Shane Fontaine. And I've got a song called New York City Girl. And I wanted to do an acoustic version, you know. And he said, let's do it as a waltz. I went like, Really? He said, Yeah, it'd be great. So he counts it off, and we both play the whole thing in three four without even thinking about what three four means. I mean, that's you've either got it or you don't. I mean, I had to reimagine the song as I was singing it, but it was effortless. It was in three four. So what? It could have been in six eight and seven four, and I could have still have sung it in those time signatures, because that's what I am. I don't rehearse it. I don't like, you know, let me just get what three, four is again. You know, it's like, give me it, let's go. And I think the first take is the one we kept. It was so honest, we just kept it. But I mean, acoustic to me is like, you know, the key to the universe. It's like everything.
0: Now, have you thought of, and a lot of bands are doing this, of playing Everyone's playing with the Prague, Prague, Prague Orchestra. Have you ever thought of doing something like that? Because I think your song would sound wonderful to that.
1: Well, we did it once in Holland. Uh, I got invited to go to Holland uh, and play with an orchestra. Um, uh, for one song. I think we did his, his new time or something. I think it is new time. And um, it was like half an hour rehearsal. And there's all these different bands on this, this huge arena, you know. <laughs> they come out and it's all you know, it's all wrong, it's out of time. And then everybody gets it together and we do, isn't it? Time place goes absolutely bananas and I walk off. And it's an interesting thing to do. But finding one, you know, where the downbeat is all the time, you need a really good conductor and you need charts that really are thought out, and you need an orchestra that can really handle it. But uh, I suppose if it was good. You know, everybody's got this idea about making a, an album of, their favorite songs in some very strange settings. You know, like production values. I mean, Dylan made Triplicate, you know, and he's he's done all these wonderful Broadway songs and Sinatra songs. Wow. I mean, great. great. But, you know, Iggy Pop had this album called uh, A Pre. It came out a few years ago. A friend of mine produced it. And um, three quarters of the album, it's in French. There's Iggy singing Le Vie en Rose and stuff, you know, in French. Because the guy that produced it married a French woman. And uh, I suppose Iggy you knows some French, obviously. He's a man of the world. But... Uh, she probably helped him out, but it's wonderful to hear Iggy singing French. You know, it's a—it's uh, it's, it's, it's like when you hear Patti Smith talk, and Patty Smith is like from Jersey, and and God bless her, she sounds totally like Jersey. You know, she's got a really broad accent, and everything she says—it's like pulling Excalibur stone you know and then she comes out with this accent you know it's like it's wonderful so in asked you a question i'd love to do an album that was like that but the songs would have to be spectacular you
0: know? well one final question what's the future for john wait you know you have a new album you, you're working on what where would you where would you like to see yourself in a year from now Seeing that we all got vaccinated and everyone can actually get back I'm to normal. I
1: vaccinated alive. I'd like to go visit my mom in England. She turns 96 in February. Yeah, uh, she got vaccinated last week. Um, I don't know. I obviously, I'd like to be back on the road. I'd like to make a really good album. I mean, this album is like, it's like four new songs. There's a few old chestnuts done acoustically that I love. And uh, a new song, a Dylan song that's very, very it's a challenge but i think i pulled it off it's a it's a, a, a grab bag of, of what i've got what i've written acoustic electric and it is suitable for the times it's something you could sit down with and it's it isn't the same thing over and over again it's like something that's going to take you somewhere and it's i hope it's uh, it's a good ride but um i'd love to just keep making good work you know the, the thing about being successful it, it that idea changes hands so so much now. It's like everybody's got a PR person. Everybody's on like you know, America's got a voice, whatever and, you know, talent around. And <laughs> it's like I'm not interested. You know, I'd like to just keep playing gigs that are like 500 seats to a thousand. Do the art festival because I can. You know, knock it out of the park. My voice is still really in shape. I don't know why, but there it is. But I just like to do work that isn't like the work I've done, but it's like an extension of what I've been. I don't wanna cheat people. I don't wanna do it for the money. I don't wanna I don't want to be bullshit, you know, I just want to be an artist and get through the rest of my life. That's what I want to do. I mean I know it sounds a little like, you know but uh it's the truth. Fuck it.
0: Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I, I want to thank you, John, for coming on. You know, I, 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 follow, I went on your Facebook page and I sent someone a message, and I've been trying to get you on for like a year or two, and it's just, it's always, it's, well, it, it's, it's hard to connect sometimes because on your website there's one address, but I'm glad this worked out. And people, his website is johnwaitworldwide.com. It's a great website. You can find all his music about him. He talks about different stuff he's written. So people, check that out. Go buy some John Waite albums. Go through his web, you know, the, the page, buy them. Tonight, listen to Missing You. If you're sitting there and your girlfriend dumped you over the pandemic or your wife, listen to Missing You. It may, it'll probably make you feel better because you know you're not the only one getting dumped. And so, people, check out John Waite. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 830 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest's. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.